This episode is brought to you by Saks Off Fifth, where you can find designer clothes, shoes, bags, home decor, and beauty products up to 70% off. We'll explain more in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. Competing at Olympic trials, I was on my very best event, which was the Anima Bars, and I fell flat on my face. I got back up and I finished my routine. And for the very first time in my life and career, I had a standing ovation for the worst routine of my entire life. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with the skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hey everyone, our guest today is Nastia Lukin. She is a gymnastics legend who won five Olympic medals in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, including the gold medal for all around. Throughout her gymnastics career, Nastia has also won four world gold medals and 32 total international medals. Since retiring after the 2012 Olympic trials, Nastia has not slowed down. She's a gymnastics analyst for NBC Sports. She's written a book and has competed on Dancing with the Stars. Nastia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Before we start talking all about work and your career, we like to start these interviews with our lightning round to get warmed up. So quick questions, quick answers. Here we go. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. I feel like we're telling like an athlete, like, are you ready to do yeah. this? Okay. <laughs> What was your first job on your resume? It was when I was 12, I guess, basically, because I shot a commercial for Adidas and didn't really know it at the time. Obviously, I got paid for it. But at 12 years old, you know, my parents kind of took care of all that. And yeah, little did I know that led me to my career today. What is the most recent job on your resume? I guess uh, being a broadcaster for NBC just got back from the Olympic trials and I'm heading to Tokyo in like two weeks. That's yeah. so exciting. I know. Do you have any hobbies or skills that people don't know about? No. Yeah. <laughs> I think like all of my talent and ability, everything went to gymnastics. Now, when you think about it, not when you were like at the height of gymnastics, but now vault, bars, beam, or floor. What's your favorite? Bars. Mine too. What is something that most people don't realize about competing in the Olympics. I was telling somebody this yesterday, but it's like, we don't have an off season. So not to compare it to like any other sport or professional sports, but we're still training seven hours a day, six days a week in our quote unquote, like off season. And then non-Olympic years, we're competing at world championships, national championships. So I think they don't realize how many years, like your entire life, you're basically training for this moment. And then also like speaking of training, We get to the Olympics normally like two or so weeks before the competition starts just to get acclimated, time change, like all of that. And we don't get a single day off until the competition's over. So it's a lot. It's exhausting. We don't get to see our families. It's a job. You know, you're kind of there to do like one thing and represent your country and wouldn't have traded it for anything. But a lot more, I guess, goes into it than the moments that you see of like standing up on the podium and like the flag and listening to the national anthem. Who is your favorite athlete? 
I always looked up to, not that I was like alive during this, but both my parents were world and Olympic champion gymnasts, obviously like the hardest workers. And so I've always admired them. And my dad was then my coach. But outside of the sport, I would say Kobe Bryant was someone that I really looked up to and was so lucky um, to have had him in my life as a mentor for many, many years. You know, obviously as an athlete, like he was phenomenal, but I think it was more so like that transition that he had from being that athlete that everybody knew that he was and setting the bar even higher for himself in like so many different ventures outside of basketball. And he always told me like, it's so important to never put yourself in that box of just being the gymnast that won the Olympics. The gymnast yeah. in the pink leotard, yeah. the matching pink scrunchie, like you were so much more than just that. That was kind of like a moment that I was like, okay, I don't need to be defined by one thing that I did when I was 18. All right, my last lightning round question. If you were competing today, what is the song you would choose to compete with? You know, I would say like some kind of like a T-Swift song. It's the Nastia Taylor I like it. collaboration. We didn't know we needed. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start at the beginning. You were an only child born to two parents who were athletes, as you mentioned, and your dad had won two Olympic gold medals. What was it like growing up with Olympics in your blood? What had your parents told you about the good and the bad of that life? Yeah, I was born in Russia and we moved to the United States when I was about two and a half years old. And as the only child, it was for multiple reasons. They obviously they wanted to give me the best possible life that they could. And they felt that they were probably more likely to be able to do that in this country. And then they also had a dream and their dream was to always open up a gymnastics school and one day coach their own athletes to becoming world and Olympic champions. They never ever imagined be their own daughter. <laughs> that was not their goal. They actually really, really tried hard to get me to not like it, to try other things just because they knew how hard the sport was. And, you know, they also didn't want me to face any kind of extra pressure because of what they had done. Yeah. That being said, like as a three, four, five-year-old, like you don't know if you're going to the Olympics or not, you know? Yeah. And so I just truly, I fell in love with it. At the beginning when we did move and they started building their own gym, they could not afford a babysitter or anything. And so I was just always in the gym because that's where they were. And, you know, until I started going to school. But then when I wasn't in school, I was at the gym. And it, for me, it was just like, it was a big playground. And I started just on the side, like watching my dad coach, you know, the gymnast that he was coaching. And I just started trying to like mimic things, I guess, and copy them without even knowing or without realizing what I was doing. And they would just start watching and being like, wait a second. She's like, doing some of these things better than <laughs> the kids that were coaching. So, you know, I think that was kind of the moment that they were like, she clearly has some sort of a God-given talent. Yeah. And she loves it. So we can't take any of those things away from her, but we'll never ever like push or force her to do it. Like this will always be her own journey. I mean, my mom, like, Literally, she tried to get me to take piano lessons and I would just, I would cry every single day that I had to go because I just wanted to be in the gym. When do you remember recognizing that you were really good? I mean, at like level six state Texas championships, I won. That means nothing, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But I remember in that moment, definitely feeling like, oh, I like the feeling of winning and being the best. And I thought by me winning that competition, I was like, 
Okay, that's it. Moving on to the next level. And I was like, okay, if I can win level six state championships in Texas, then I can go to the Olympics. <laughs> and it, that's obviously like so not like valid. And so people were just like, okay, you know, she's cute. She's not really probably going to get as far as her parents did and not in like a bad way, but I just never took in what other people's thoughts or opinions were. Like for me, I was just like, well, I know what I want to do. Like they're not in control of my destiny. And then actually like two and a half years after level six, which is crazy to jump. Like I skipped level yeah. seven, eight and 10. I topped out at four. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't do a cartwheel. I can teach you. Nastia, if you taught me how to do a cartwheel, I think I would die. Like I love the Olympics so much and I'm such a huge fan. Can you teach me how to do a cartwheel? Yes. Yes. I will say that I loved gymnastics and I did it until I realized that I was not going to get good. And then puberty hit and I was like, well, this is all over for me. But now my my kind of like drunk party favors are like I can still do the front handsprings. And then I wake up, then I wake up the next morning and I'm like, why did I do that? Yeah. I mean, that still happens to me like when, you know, I'm on a shoot. Like today, I actually have a shoot later and it's at my parents' gym that I trained at. And every time I walk in, it's like, I think that I can like mentally still do something because the gym looks the exact same, you know? And it's like, I spent my entire life there. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally get up on the beam and do like a frenario right now. And there have been times where I do it. And then the next day, I'm like, you can't do the same things. I'm 31 now. Like my body does like not feel the same that it did when I was 16. I think that's such an interesting thing about Olympians and about gymnasts also is you were told when you were getting started that you didn't have the right body type or necessarily mm-hmm. the right strength. How did that affect you? It was weird because I think I I didn't realize it then being so young. I think it it got even like, like not worse, but people kind of started saying more and more, basically like the year of the Olympic or leading up to the Olympics, I guess. Like when I legitimately had a chance to like make the Olympic team in 2008 and it was just like, she's like too tall. Okay. I was like five, two. She's too skinny. She's not strong enough. She's too old. I was 18. And all these things that everybody said that I was to this or to that and not enough this or that. That was the first time that I realized like, why is it so okay and normal to just put these things into someone's mind to make them believe that they're not good enough? Who are you to say that? You know, it's like, I'm the only person that can judge if I'm not strong enough, if I'm not skinny enough, you know, it's like the height thing, the age thing, like that's just it is what it is. And so it's like, that's out of my control. And with the strength part, I mean, I did almost two hours a day of just strength and conditioning every single day. So I clearly was strong enough to do what I was doing. Yes, I'm never going to be as strong as even like some of my teammates now, you know, or I never would have been no matter how much I ran, no matter how much like conditioning that I did, like I will never be as strong as Simone Biles. And that is just like fact. And it's like, that's okay. You know, it's like everybody is enough in their own right, in their own way. And I think that bothered me a little bit, this unsolicited opinion. And then when I won the Olympics, that's kind of the moment that I was like, okay, if I can win the Olympics when, you know, pretty much All odds were against me in the sense of no one thought that I could do it. I was too old. I was too injured. I was washed up. I was too weak. I was too skinny. I was like too everything except for like 
too good. (laughs) And when that happened, I was like, okay, like if you are able to do that, then you have no limits Mm -hmm. to achieve the things that you want to achieve. I think a lot of people right now in their normal lives that don't involve the Olympics are (laughs) mentally and can be physically exhausted. In those moments, obviously the physical part took on a totally different meeting. But how did you keep going all those years when you wanted to quit? Mm-hmm. When you had a bad day? Yeah. Was it external pressure to keep you going or was it something inside you? I'm pretty stubborn just like as a person and I think There were so many days, like it wasn't just like one bad day where I wanted to quit. There were a lot of days. And and I'm not saying like there were more bad days than good days. Obviously it was, it's the opposite, but I think people don't see that. Right. And they don't realize like how hard it actually is to build a business from the ground up, train for the Olympics. Like, because you only see when you watch on TV, you see the fairy tale moment where everything comes together and you have the best competition of your life and you trained your whole life for that moment. And all of a sudden you win a gold medal and no one sees those bad days and the days that you wanted to quit. And so my mom taught me something that I don't know, just I'll remember for the rest of my life, I would come home after any bad day and tell her that I wanted to quit. And normally it was a bad day. It was like, whether I was injured and just frustrated, whether I was like, couldn't make a beam routine or skill, or I was sore, I was tired, I was exhausted. And she would say, that's fine. You can quit, but not today. And she would make me go back to the gym the next day, the next day, the next day until I had one good day. And I mean, sometimes that would be the next day. And sometimes that would be like a week later, I'd have like bad day after bad day after bad day. And so finally, whenever I'd have a good day, I'd come home and my mom, she'd say, okay, great. Like now that you had a good day, you can quit. We'll enroll you back into public school. We'll find another activity that you like to do. And I would always be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never said I wanted to quit. (laughs) And I think it was like those moments to me, it wasn't about like, you can't quit because you can become an Olympian. It was never about that. It was just trying to teach me these lessons that you know, we're going to have bad days for the rest of our life, unfortunately, right? Like whether you're training for the Olympics, whether you, you know, in a relationship, in business, just in life, and you can't just, you know, say, I want to quit, you know, after a bad day, you really can never quit or give up on a bad day. Okay. So I don't know about you guys, but I am guilty of pretty much wearing the exact same outfit day after day during the pandemic probably more than I'd ever care to admit. But now that things are going back to normal, I am starting to pay attention to what I wear every day and dressing to impress, if you will. And I realized I need new stuff, which is why I have been using Saks Off Fifth nonstop. They have all of the best clothes, shoes, bags, you name it, at up to 70% off their full price. And I love their app, which you can constantly browse and add to when you're on the go. And you get app-only offers, which I love. So download today and use code AppSF, that is A-P-P-S-F, to get 10% off your very first $100 Plus in app purchase. Find your next brag worthy designer steal at Saks Off Fifth. You can shop in store with their Saks Off Fifth app or online at SaksOffFifth.com. That's S A K S O F F 5 T H.com. 
Sean Johnson, your rivalry was legendary. You've talked about it publicly. (laughs) Take us just sort of back in time a little bit around how you handled this kind of external noise around the media putting two women against each other. So it's so strange, you know, it's like, and I think that's why I struggle a little bit now with this competitive thing still of a woman trying to compete against another woman, because I'm like, I had to, that was my life for so long, like to the point where now it's like the difference between like a soul cycle and a flywheel. Like I'm a soul cycle person only because I'm there for myself. I'm not trying to compete against anyone. So it's like that leaderboard on the thing. I'm like, uh, uh-uh. like, I cannot do it anymore. That's funny. I've also used that as an example of like motivation. Are you a soul cycle person? You're a flywheel. Oh yeah. I'm totally soul cycle for like all the reasons of I'm doing this for myself. I'm not trying to be competitive and I get the flywheel aspect hundred percent, but I did that my whole life and now I'm like, I'm good. So with Sean, it felt very normal. I think going through it because every single year, every single Olympics, there's always two rivals and it's like, especially For us, like for the media, you couldn't have written a better story, right? It was like, we were the complete opposites. She was just like so strong and so powerful and so quick and bubbly and smiley. And then I was the opposite. I was like, I was a little bit taller. I was more flexible. I excelled in complete opposite things. And when I competed, I was like very stoic. And so it came across as like super cold. And that was my way of focusing. And for Sean, she was the complete opposite. Her smiling and laughing was like her way to like stay focused, but not get inside her head too much. But the craziest thing was, so we were roommates at the Olympics and we were so similar on everything else except for our gymnastics, just as ambitious. We went to sleep early. We read books. We like journaled. Out of our six Olympic teammates during the Olympics, I would say we were the most similar. It didn't hit both of us until after the Olympics, like how much the media started affecting our thoughts. We were living in the very, very sheltered kind of world of all of a sudden now we were exposed to so much more that we were like, whoa, this is weird. But if they're saying that, then that must be true. Everything became a competition on and off the gymnastics floor. And when it became a competition off the floor, I think that's when we both were like, this is weird. But because your whole life has been a competition, you just go with it and you don't, you almost don't know better, you know? So it just like one year after another, after another, and all of a sudden, like we didn't speak for eight years for no reason. We had no idea why. And the final straw for me was she was engaged planning her wedding and I was engaged at the time as well. And everyone started saying like, this was going to be like bride wars part two. I said, it's one thing to be competitive on the competition floor. Are you kidding me? Like you are going to now make our weddings a competition. We've talked about this so many times since, but it's like we both wanted to reach out to each other and we both didn't even know how to do it. We had both changed numbers multiple times since I was going to school at NYU. And one day I got a very, very long email from her and I was literally like walking down like Fifth Avenue and I just like stopped and started crying. And yeah, it was along the lines of just, her apologizing for like, we don't even know what, right? Because nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And then just being like, I love you. I miss you. I'm sure you've seen, but I'm getting married soon. And 
it would mean nothing more than for you to be there and for you to meet my um, future husband. And yeah, it's like emotional, just like kind of talking about that. And I remember I replied and then we started texting and we had almost like eight years to like catch up on mm -hmm. things. And she was like, I don't know if you're up for it, but I would love to see you even if it's for coffee. And yeah, we met. I still remember it was at the Bowery Hotel at Gemma and we met for coffee and we like she walked in and we just both started crying and went to our wedding, you know, shortly after. And we went through so much together since then, like my engagement ended. And so going through that breakup was like really, really challenging and being there for each other. And then she had a miscarriage. And again, it was like one thing after another that was just not necessarily these fun, positive times, but being able to kind of be there for each other, understanding that what we had gone through all these years, I always just say, I'm like, there, there's room for everybody. You know, there's room for everybody to be successful and to do the things that they want to do. And it, it was just a huge life lesson for me. I want to go to the next question, but I have to say, Danielle and I, pre-pandemic, used to go to Gemma at the Bowery. So I'm like, if I had <sighs> run into you and Sean, I don't know what I would do. I, I would have freaked out. <laughs> like, I'm such a huge fan of both. 2008, you got the attention not only of the country, but of the world and in, in, in such an incredible way at the Olympics. But 2012 did not repeat that for you. I think when we think about everyone's career trajectory, everyone has a dark moment, a fall on your face moment. And I just want you to sort of walk us through what happened and then how did you get through that? Yeah. So it's so funny that dark moment for me and I'll, I'll explain, but like that became somehow the defining moment of my career falling on my face. And I think that when I say that without explaining it first, people are like, good story. Like how, like how, you know, how does that top winning the Olympic all-around gold medal. But I guess for me, going into trials four years later, I was now going in as the reigning Olympic all-around champion. Like I had a lot more pressure and a lot more expectations and nerves and everything on me then than I had four years prior. And my rotator cuff and labrum were torn. Not for those things to be excuses, but I was not ready like really to be at my best again. But that being said... For me, I knew I was going to be at those next Olympics, whether I was working, whether I was sitting in the stands cheering on my teammates or, you know, just in some capacity, basically. And so I didn't want to be there thinking, what if? What if I would have tried and just given it my all one more time? Because for me, my biggest fear kind of has always been like the fear of living with regret. And I don't have regrets. I feel like everything happens for a reason always. Like whether it is a career, a relationship, like everything happens for a reason, even though it could be like very challenging to understand in the moment. So competing at Olympic trials, I was on my very best event, which was the uneven bars. And I fell flat on my face. I was doing a release move and I didn't catch the bar. And I remember like literally laying there completely flat and being like confused. First of all, I'm supposed to be on the bar finishing my routine. And then when I quickly kind of realized everything that just 
happened and all the steps that would also now follow this, I was so embarrassed. I was so mortified. Like, A, I had just fallen on my face. Like, that in itself is just like, okay. Yeah. Like, you can do that in training and it's just like, oh, gosh. But then to do that in front of 20,000 people and millions watching back at home, I, yeah, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I wanted to literally, like, crawl underneath the podium and be done. And my dad was just like, first of all, like he want to make sure I wasn't injured and I, I was okay. And then the dad instinct totally kicked in, in him. He just wanted me to be safe. <laughs> and he was like, you don't have to finish. And I was like, yes, I do. Like you always taught me no matter what you do, you always have to finish what you've started. And I knew that I was not making that Olympic team. Like there was absolutely no way that I was going to make that team. And so I was like, the only thing that I can do here is at least like finish on my own terms. And I knew that that was going to be the last competition if I didn't make the Olympic team. And so I got back up and I finished my routine, landed on my feet on my dismount. And for the very first time in my life and career, I had a standing ovation for the worst routine of my entire life and career. And I was so confused because I remember looking around the arena saying, who else just went and is like, you know, well on their way to making an Olympic team. And like, nobody was going. I was the last person in that rotation. And I was like thinking, why are these people even clapping for me? Like I literally fell on my face. That does not deserve like support. And it took me a second, like, and by a second, I mean, maybe a few days or a week or a few weeks to finally like realize what had actually happened. And what I think that I struggled with understanding in the moment was that I always thought that people were only going to love or support me or cheer me on if I was the best, if I won first place, if I did a really good bar routine, if I won the Olympics. And I don't know why I thought like no one ever taught me that. It was just like the self-inflicted thing that I had in my mind that I had to be the best in order for people to care about me and to love me. And so that moment that I had at the Olympic trials taught me so many things. You will never be defined by a placement, a gold medal, a job title, a salary, a relationship, anything that you do in life. Like you will never be defined by any of those moments. You will be remembered and hopefully more so defined by just the person that you are and your heart and your character and not giving up. We are all going to fall on our face literally or figuratively at some point in our life. And it's about how do I pick myself up and how do I keep going and how do I get past that basically and know that A, like that's important to pick yourself up and keep going and that also people are still going to love you and people are still going to support you mm -hmm. and you're not defined by any of those moments. Once it hit me, it was like, okay, like this is okay. Like even when I'm literally at my lowest in my career, because when I won the Olympics, like people clapped and cheered, but like no one was standing on their feet. They're yeah. just like, oh, cool. Good job. <laughs> We've got two questions to wrap up with. The first is from one of our listeners. Abby wants to know. Hi, Nastia. I was wondering if you have any mantras or positive words you repeat to yourself. Yeah. So I don't even know if I read this somewhere or what, but it was always keep a positive thought because a positive thought cannot be denied. It's so easy to like, you know, when you're on a four inch wide balance beam, it is so easy to get your mind to go to dark places of splitting the beam or falling or having mistakes. And it's like the second you start thinking anything negative, like that's all your mind can think of. And our minds can't think of and I'm not an expert. This is just something I've like learned, but it really can't think of two 
things at the same time. Instead of thinking the things that you don't want to do, start thinking about the things like that you need to do in order for something amazing to happen, right? So instead of saying, I don't want to fall off the beam, you can say, okay, in order to make this back handspring, whatever, the best that I can, I know that I need to do X, Y, and Z. I like the the positive thinking. All right, our very last question, who else should we have on the show? Oh, well, I guess since we talked about Sean, <laughs> we should hear her can, side of the story. Can I'm you make kidding. it happen? <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can try. Right. I can try right. my best. Introduce she us. texted me this morning asking when we can go on a vacation. So like we, <laughs> we travel, say, we're good. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Nastia, thank you so much and congratulations on everything. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.